Hi, Pastor John here, welcoming you to our Easter 2023 service. Let me ask you this question this morning. Is it true? Can we find something about Jesus or the gospel in every passage in the Bible? We find the answer in an unlikely place. Let's take a look at Psalm 118 for our sermon today. This is the day. You know, you give somebody a few minutes at the pulpit and look what happens. Hey, look, uh, be- before we get to the sermon, I want to talk to you for just a second about, uh, to all those in Rome. Uh, now, we did this, what was it, three years ago? Uh, so you saw, some of you had a chance to see this. This is an incredible, dynamic reading of the book of Romans. And I, I got to tell you something, that's all it is. It- it's a dynamic reading of the book of Romans, but it is so incredibly powerful uh, we're going to put this out to the city uh, this year, and that's why we're having multiple showings. But I promise you, if you haven't seen this before, it will touch you deeply. It's the power of the Word of God. So uh, Dennis Lutero, a good friend of ours, um, has repackaged this and put it back together. Uh, we have a few more players this time just to add some realism to it. But I promise you, uh, this will be an experience. And if, if you have time, please come and join us. Uh, but spread the word as well. Uh, this is an incredible gospel opportunity, and it's in a, in a fashion that we just haven't seen before. Uh, I've been trying to talk Dennis into memorizing more books, but he thinks, that's, he thinks that's a pretty big job. So he does a great one with Romans, so God bless him. Amen? So we'll have more details on that as we get closer to the date. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 118. While you're going there, you've heard this before, but it bears repeating. The Bible is a cohesive story. It's not a collection of books. It starts out in the garden. God creates man. He sins. He falls out of the garden. And God gives just the slightest hint of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. When he says that the serpent will bruise the seed of the woman on the heel and the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent on the head. And so that's in Genesis 3, 14, 15. You can take a look at that later. And so, so begins the most epic story in all the history of mankind. It's a story that sets the template for millions of classic stories, a story that depicts the defeat of indescribable evil by the ultimate and perfect good. So back in the old-time Westerns, the good guys would wear white hats, the bad guys would wear black hats. That is based on what we see rolling out in the Bible throughout the, the entire Scripture. So, it, and what it is, is a story of God and his creation and the final consummation of that creation for the glory of God. So the rest of the book from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation, in each book, in each chapter, in each verse, reveals God himself. The Bible is God's self-revelation to his creation. So it reveals God himself, and every passage reveals some facet of the God's plan of redemption for his children. Now, some people go, well, that's kind of hard to believe. It's okay. But here's a truth that I want you to hold on to this morning. 
you can find something about Jesus Christ or the gospel in every passage in the Bible. You just have to be willing to look for it. So the title of our sermon today is This is the Day. Now sing with me for a second. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. The Lord has made. I love that song. I used to think, yes, God made today. Well, he did. Amen? But, but maybe, maybe there's something a little bit deeper in there. I mean, we've got this familiar song. What day is the song about? And a lot of people think it's about today. Again, that's true enough. But there's something to be mined from this. So I want to, as we look at Psalm 18, I'm going to read through the entire psalm with you. Okay, so open up your Bibles, follow along. Keep them open because we're going to go back to it a couple of times. Okay? Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. I want you to see what just happened in these verses here. 
If you take a look at the first four verses, we're not going to read them again, but they repeat this phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Take a look through your Bible in the ESV. You find that phrase is there 196 times. Now, you know, when God repeats himself, he's got something important to say. And we go, oh, it's repeated three times. That's a lot. Do you think that the Lord is trying to tell us something about who he is, about what his character and nature is, when he says 196 times that my steadfast love endures forever? And for God, that's a long time, amen? Because it not only stretches forward from here, it goes backward to the beginning of time and before. 196 times. In verses 5 through 7, He repeats, the Lord is on my side. He set me free. I will not fear. He is my helper. That might be important as well. In verses 8 and 9, he repeats, it is better to take refuge in the Lord. Now, we've been in Psalms for a while. And that idea of taking refuge in the Lord keeps on popping up. That might be another thing that we want to take a close look at. Because frequently... When we run into difficulties in our lives, we take refuge everywhere but in the Lord. Amen? Some people take refuge in the addictions that they have. Some people take refuge in the possessions that they have. Some people take refuge in their friends. And while taking refuge in your friends is not really a big problem, we need to wonder how much our friends can help us when we're in trouble. Whereas the Lord has already told us he's on our side and he's our helper. So there's some important messages right here in the first seven verses or so. So what we have in this psalm is a warrior. This is, it might be David, who's learning to depend on the steadfast love of the Lord because the Lord is on his side. And God is also his refuge. In God, he's urged to allow the Lord to fight for him. That's kind of what's rolling out here. He's urged to allow the Lord to protect him. Now, these are hard things for a warrior to do. They're hard things for us to do that may not be warriors, to allow somebody else to fight for us, to think that some, we might need somebody else to protect us. So the psalmist is just laying all this out because he needs help. He may be in a little bit over his head. Because in verses 10 through 13, we find out the warrior is surrounded. And he repeats that four times. So this guy is just a little bit concerned about the fact that he seems to be surrounded and overwhelmed by all those that are coming against him. And the warrior fought hard, and he almost won. But then, then he began to fall. He began to weaken. And the Lord who is steadfast and by his side and a helper and his refuge helped him when he was falling. Now, there's some good news for today. When we feel overwhelmed, when we feel hopeless, the Lord is there. He's steadfast. He's a helper. He's our refuge. He's our place of safety, our place of rest. And the warrior in verses 14 through 16 now realizes that his true strength is in the Lord. And he begins to sing. Now, the whole psalm is a song, so we have to bear with 
the author as they create some images for us. But he begins to sing, and he sings songs of salvation. Valiant songs, not about himself, but about the Lord who exalts those who are his. There's a life lesson in that. As we turn our focus, as we extol the virtues of God, as we praise him, as we worship, he lifts us up. We don't have to prove ourselves to anybody or anything. This is the Lord's job. In verse 17 and 18, the world realizes that the, the battle has been tough, but he's going to survive. And when he does survive, he's going to tell of the good things that the Lord does. Then he gets real figurative in verse 20 through 24. He wants to walk in righteousness. This is the gate. He wants to walk through the gate that only the righteous can walk through. He wants to walk in a holy manner. All this is coming from the fact that he's realizing who God is and and who he isn't. The man's grateful for all this. He's grateful for his salvation. The Lord is doing a work in this warrior, changing his heart. And his enemies don't like it. His enemies reject this work of God in him. You're not so special. Who do you think you are? You think God's moving in your life? Well, I knew you when you stole bread out of the bakery. See how this works? I mean, we might think this was 1,700, 2,700 years ago. But things like this reach right out of the, the scriptures and into our hearts. And we can relate to this. The author takes comfort in knowing that the Lord's been in the middle of everything that he's going through. He's steadfast. God is his helper and his refuge. Right back from verses 1 through 4. In verse 25, he asks for deliverance. Now, this is deliverance for all of his people. Not just him. And he asks for success. Now, we'll get into what this word means in just a little bit, but I'm assuming that he's asking for success in this battle, maybe for success in the entire war. He knows who's going to win it, so he asks for it. The rest of the psalm is a praise, albeit with some challenging phrasing. Verse 26 is familiar. We heard it last week, didn't we, in the, what we call the triumphal entry. The uh, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord, it's a victory song followed by a curious phrase. It says, bind the festal sacrifice up to the horns of the altar. What is that doing here? The NIV says, join the festal procession, which I think both of these are accurate. Because the author is trying to create an image for us, something he wants us to see. And what he wants us to see is the procession. In particular, during Passover, millions of people are in Jerusalem. The procession of the sacrifice being ushered into the temple and upon the altar and secured there, tied there, until the sacrifice is complete. The author wants to tell us that the sacrifice needed to remit our sins, because that's what the Jews thought these were about, amen? That the sacrifice needed to remit our sins, the sacrifice needed to to pay for the sins that everyone's committed, is secure. And the ceremony is complete, and the victory belongs to God. Say a lot about the Jews, because they miss this and they miss that, but we miss this and miss that too. 
But they understood this stuff. They got it. They knew what the sacrifice was there for. And when they were called to turn back to God, they did. So they got a lot right. And I think sometimes we shortchange them a little bit. So the, the Jews would see this very vivid picture of the sacrifice being taken into the temple, tied to the altar. And once it was tied to the altar, they knew that everything was secure, that their sins would be remitted. And so the worry ends with this statement of faith, you are my God. And one more repetition, his steadfast love endures forever. So the whole psalm is bracketed with these two phrases. And it's a song, it's a hymn, a beautiful picture of where a warrior's true strength is, where his victory comes from, and how his trust in God brings victory. And all along the way, we see this imagery that would be meaningful to the Jews of the day. Allusions to God's deliverance. References to his victory. Pictures of the ceremonies that God gave his people that were meant to reveal facets of his relationship with all those people that love him. Now, they didn't know this, but these are mere shadows of what was to come. They were portents. They were those ceremonies and the law and all of the practices that we see in in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus. They, They paint a picture, but the picture is not the focus. The picture points the way. To, to a more perfect image, to something that would be even more enduring, a reality of what is to come. And that reality of what is to come, that reality of the picture they point, explodes on the scene. And it happens when a virgin gives birth to a baby in Bethlehem. A baby who is heralded by the host of heaven. And by shepherds, simple shepherds. The baby grows up sinless. Do you struggle with that? The four-year-old that eats his vegetables? The eight-year-old that cleans his room? The 13-year-old that honors mom and dad? Those of you that have had teenagers, you know what I'm talking about. He didn't do any of that stuff. He grew up perfect. And and he, he began to perform signs and wonders as he claimed to be the son of God. The claims were verified by the signs and wonders he did, but not just by Not just by the signs and wonders, but by this incredible teaching. Teaching like no one has ever heard. And at the height of his ministry, he comes to Jerusalem. This is the big moment for him. Everybody thinks he's there to conquer the Romans. And when the vast majority of them finds out that that's not what he came to do, they turn on him. He's disappointed them. They're going to make him pay. Now, our, our psalmist in 118 probably didn't know it, but he was writing about that moment in history almost 700 odd years before it began. 
And it was describing it in vivid detail. And with that in mind, let's take a look at our psalm again. Keep your Bibles open. This time we're going to zero in on verses 14 through 24. And picturing Jesus Christ as he rides that donkey down the winding path from the Mount of Olives over towards the, the temple. And he approaches Jerusalem for the Passover. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. Now, this describes capability. This describes enablement. The NIV says the Lord is my defense and my song. The song in his heart. The song that he sings over and over again. Perhaps to remind him of what's coming and where his strength lies. Jesus comes down the hill knowing what's ahead. He knows what he's come to do. He's knowing that it's going to be hard, but he also knows this. And we go back to the repeated phrases. He knows that his Father in heaven is steadfast, is his helper, and his refuge. Verse 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteousness. The crowd is singing and chanting, and in the psalmist's day, that singing would come from the tabernacle and all the tents surrounding it. In Jesus' day, it would come from the temple. And everything surrounding the temple, the whole city would have its focus on God and the sacrifice and the Passover. And then verse 15 says, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is strong. The NIV says the right hand of the Lord has done mightily. Verse 16, the right hand of the Lord exalts. Watch this. The right hand of the Lord raises. Oh, I like that. I like the idea that I'm going to be raised up, right? But we're talking about Jesus Christ here. We're talking about the moment that he enters the temple. The right hand raises. NIV says lifts high. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The song being raised proclaims that the Lord lifts high. His people high and does a mighty work. Now, some think that that's an encouragement that God's going to vindicate his people, going to avenge them. And what's really happening in this moment, in this psalm, is that God is inspiring this writer to graphically describe what is going to happen in just a few short days after his son enters Jerusalem. After his son, that only son, will be literally lifted high. That's what we saw in verses 26 and 27, wasn't it? Look at this. Verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord. We pray, give us success. That was being chanted as he came down that path. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Same chant. Then verse 27. The Lord is God and he's made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Oh my. Five days after he enters Jerusalem. The hands and feet of our Lord and Savior are first tied to the cross. He's not held there just by the nails. The flesh could rend and he could fall and his suffering would end. 
So they tied him to the cross. See this? Then everything was nailed in place. And in one startling, clear moment in history, we see that the altar, the place that the sacrifice is laid upon for 2,000 years had been pointing God's people towards the cross. And as Jesus is hoisted up on that cross, up on the peak of Golgotha, a spectacle for everybody to see, his forgiveness, God's forgiveness, his light shines down on us, on us. And while to some people that were gathered around there, it seemed like a tragedy was a valiant work. It was a mighty work of God. And we know it was a mighty work of God. We should have known 700 years because of verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. So it's going to appear that Jesus is dead. Body's taken down from the cross. It's wrapped in a burial shroud, placed in the tomb. Most folks are pretty sure that that's it. He's done, even most of his followers. But, but that, that sacrifice, that's not the mighty work that God is doing. It's certainly a part of it. The sin of the world was placed on his shoulders. Your sin, my sin, and the unbridled wrath of God descends on his only son. Verse 18 says, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Jesus takes all the punishment, all of the condemnation, all the grief and the guilt of the sin that we should have suffered and allows those soldiers and nail him to the cross and mock him while he endures incredible agony. Agony and pain that would kill any other man. And the Son of God has gone through some of the cruelest torture that man can ever devise and commits himself to finishing the work. Hanging there for you and me. Hanging there in our place. Why? Because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Amen? Because the Lord is on our side and will be our helper. Amen? Because the Lord is our refuge. Amen? It came, he came down to do all this, to suffer through all this because of his great love for you. He went through all of it for us. For those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and came to die for our sins. And then he came out of the tomb. What? Oh, we're so familiar with the empty tomb, aren't we? Do you understand how that moment Literally changes everything. He came out of the tomb. Everything he said, everything he did, 
Every psalm that was ever written, every law that was ever levied on man are fulfilled right there as he walks out of the tomb. And and the psalmist hasn't missed this. Look at this, verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The only one that can enter through the gates of righteousness are those who are righteous. Who's righteous? Nobody. There are none righteous, not one. The only way we enter into those gates is in and through Jesus Christ. Verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. There aren't any except for Jesus. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's another familiar phrase. You realize that came from here. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So it's not, it's not an emergency maneuver. It's not plan B. It's not a fallback position. God wasn't sitting in heaven going, oh my, look what they've done to my son. And before that, he wasn't sitting in heaven saying, well, they're not doing a really good job. What are we going to do, guys? Should we send somebody down there to fix it? This was the plan from the beginning. God revealing his glory in our redemption. We fell. God says, okay, I know you fell. All of you have sinned. All of you have fallen short of the glory of God. All of you need salvation. So I'm going to do that for you. By my grace, you will be drawn unto me and given eternal life. Wow. And there's one final comment. This, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I promise you, you will never sing that song the same way again. Because it talks about the day that Jesus came out of the tomb. It talks about him being beaten, taken to the cross. It talks about the day that Gave us eternity. It was made by God. It was made to reveal the full magnitude of his glory. It's an incredible thing. And he demonstrates in spectacular manner the fact that he has authority over sin. He has authority over all creation. He has authority even over, over death. See, that's why, that's why we come here today to celebrate the fact that God has done a mighty and valiant thing. To remember the steadfast love of God that is not only able to get this warrior through this battle and cause him to have victory, but it falls upon you and I, when we call upon him as our Lord and Savior. The steadfast love that says, I will get you through. The steadfast love that says, I endured this incredible pain and suffering so that you could be with me forever. And all you have to do is believe what I'm saying is true. God does the rest of the work. He draws us to him. He enables us to do 
the victory the warrior talks about. He enables us to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. So, if we understand what we just saw, then we understand that every book, every chapter, every verse in the Bible tells a story of that day. You just have to be able to look at it closely enough to, to see what's happening. It tells the story of Jesus Christ, Son of God, resurrected and taking all those who believe in him to glory with the Father forever and ever. It's an incredible day. You know, we have, we have, these, two, we have these two days where the world kind of thinks, Maybe I ought to go to church. <laughs> yeah, That's a good thing. Amen? Amen? Uh, because there's something supernatural happening as the body of Christ, as you and me, turn our eyes towards Jesus Christ and look upon the sacrifice he made. We, we know there's something very special happening, and I think the world gets to participate in that. So we get to celebrate. The fact that Jesus died for our sins. If that doesn't make you want to cry hallelujah, I don't think anything will. Lisa? A crown of thorns placed on his head He knew that he would soon be dead. He said, did you forget me, Father, did you? They nailed him to a wooden cross. Soon all the world would feel the loss of Christ the King before his hallelujah. Savior, 
from his head the thorny crown and wrapped him in a linen gown and laid him down to rest inside the tomb. The holes in his hands, his feet and side said in his heart, we know he died to save us from ourselves. Oh, You know it's okay to praise, amen? (laughs) Amen. Stand up for a second. Father, we give you thanks. We shout hallelujah because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, we pray that you carry this message with us as we go, that we come pouring out of us, Lord, that as we walk through this world, that we will be living messengers of the grace and mercy that you exhibited when you brought your son out of that tomb. We give you praise, Father. We give you honor. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in online. Look, we're going to start something new. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at wbfva.org. Just click on giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.